Hi, I'm Matt Cooper, and this is In the Fume Hood. My guest on this edition of our Kemi Talk Show is Milo Koretsky, formerly of Oregon State University and currently the McDonald Family Bridge Professor in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering, as well as the Department of Education at Tufts University. In this edition of ITFH, Milo shares deeply interesting philosophical thoughts about effective conceptual teaching and engagement, illuminates the thermodynamic threads present in a common phase diagram, and even gives yours truly a question from the AICHE Concept Warehouse live on a hot mic. Before getting to that interview, I'm delighted that In the Fume Hood Season 2 is brought to you by Vector254, makers of the chemical engineering app suite also known as the Chemi app, available exclusively on Apple's App Store. Whether you're a professional or a student, the Chemi app has all sorts of tools that make your work and homework faster and easier. After listening to today's episode, go to our Twitter feed at In the Fume Hood, where you can find a link to the Chemi app and download it today. The listeners should know that I personally own and use the Chemi app because it's so convenient to click the app to quickly complete unit conversions, even for things like heat transfer coefficients. Much better than typing, let's say, convert watts per meter Kelvin to calories per hour millimeter degree Celsius into a search engine and ending up in a bigger alphanumeric mess than you started with. With our sponsor's message complete, here I offer the In the Fume Hood disclaimer as follows. Just to be clear, this podcast is recorded completely outside of my guests and I's normal work responsibilities on our own time, and all opinions expressed in this podcast are likewise our own. They are not intended to reflect those of our employers, funding agencies, professional societies, or frankly anyone. Just us. And then Tufts, so one coast for the other coast, I guess. Yeah, the left coast for the right coast. Um. <laughs> Well, we'll be glad to have you over here on the Eastern Seaboard. That'll be nice. Yeah, that'll be good. I'll, I'll appreciate uh, not having to wake up early for a lot of conferences. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I remember there was one conference where you were the first talk, and I was the moderator for that session, but you were the first talk on like Monday morning at 8 a.m. <laughs> I'm, sure like, I I like, I'm sure I was a mess. I felt bad for you because I'm like, poor Milo. Of course they put him first at 8 a.m. It's 5 a.m. to him. Poor guy coming all the way over here. Yeah, I was probably on autopilot for that. Yeah, well, as, as far as I remember, it was still a good talk. So, uh, you know, you didn't uh, you didn't let on that you were sleeping. I faked it pretty well. <laughs> Milo, I wanted to just say I'm super excited to have you on uh, this episode of In the Fume Hood. I've always liked your stuff, and it's just a it's just a real thrill for you to be here with me today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I look forward to chatting with you. Yeah, well, you know, I wanted to start just by talking with you about your background because, you know, I'm always fascinated by people who can do everything that's associated with being a research professor, which seems like you know a tenure track faculty member, because that seems like such a huge undertaking and then also do education research. And you had a really interesting sort of background because your early part of your career, your technical career was like, your research was on things like thin films and plasmas, etching, corrosion. I know you had some articles in like the Journal of the Electrochemical Society, which I used to publish in. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of transitioned into doing engineering education research sort of slowly, and then it kind of picked up steam. And now that's what you do for your career. And so I'm just kind of wondering, like, how did that happen? Like, what made you get interested in engineering education research and kind of change your research focus? Well, you might say it was a midlife crisis. But, uh, <laughs> uh, no, there, uh, so I started out, uh, you know, meandering through. Um, my PhD was at Berkeley in chemical engineering, but that was in the College of Chemistry. And that was really fundamental-based research. I was actually uh, developing a technique in molecular spectroscopy. So looking at species in a plasma and uh, trying to measure atoms. And the approach was that, well, if uh, you can uh, pop from spin up to spin down if you put in microwave radiation. So we modulated that with a magnetic field. So, I, I mean, that was like hardcore physical chemistry. I, we, I can make an excuse that it was chemical engineering um, because the understanding the kinetics of those processes was important for uh, polymer etching processes and other type of things. But it was really a fundamentals type thing. 
Then, then when I went to Oregon State University, still an R1 institution, but maybe not with all the gravitas that Berkeley has. I uh, switched my research direction to look at problems which were more grounded in application. So, you know, looking at things like, uh, you know, you mentioned the corrosion research that was actually, there, there's these beautiful coastal bridges and the, uh, designed by an architect, Nicola, and they were built in the early 20th century. But when the contractors would run short on water for the, for the concrete, they just grab some seawater and throw it in there to make, make the mix right. So there's a bunch of chloride ions kind of embedded in there. And so these bridges are corroding. And one of the strategies is to uh, deposit a thin film, uh, zinc was used, we explore titanium for, uh, as well, on the exterior of the bridge and basically get that film to oxidize instead of the reinforcing steel of the interior. So you just send electrons from, from whatever metal that is to the inside. Um, anyways, I'm doing this stuff working with, that one was the Department of Transportation, did a bunch of work with high-tech companies too. A part of that I was hired in the Oregon Joint Graduate Schools of Engineering as uh, the, what they call the Silicon Forest was taking off in the greater Portland area in the Northwest. And one of the missions was to su provide technical support. So as I was interacting uh, with these companies, um, there was one microelectronics company in particular who the, the uh, lead on the project during a break, we were, we were chatting. And, you know, I was asking him, well, what's good what's not so good about our graduates. And uh, he's a very frank person. And he told me that, well, you know, they, they're, the technical skills are good as long as it's very constrained, but they need more reps. And I'm like, what do you mean they need, need more reps? And he's like, well, it's out of the gym. If you want to get good at something, you focus on it and you develop it. And they need stuff that's uh, more like the stuff they do in industry, which is messier, and they need to uh, figure out how what they know applies to that, and sometimes make decisions when it doesn't. That's really fascinating, because I know I've had students for like senior design projects get kind of frustrated with the open-ended nature of it, and I literally once had a student say that they at the end of it, they wanted to know what the answer was. Like, how close did they get to the right answer? Yeah, yeah, that's that's so true. And and you can't blame a student for that. We, you know, they've had fifteen years of being successful getting the right answer. That it it's reasonable to think that your idea of knowledge is that there's there's a right answer. So it's like, why do we wait till the sixteenth year to do that stuff? And not everybody does, and it's. Uh, percolating back, but you know we could do a better job of, as engineering instructors. But but you, you know you bring that point up, and it's interesting because that I mean so the root is what in our learning processes may uh, how can we improve our learning processes so that students are more ready for the for practice for the type of work they do they'll do in their careers. And, uh, you know, being an engineer, I like to design things. And so this led to, to a design of a senior project where we created a technology tool to mimic the process, the, literally the process I was working on with this person. And uh, in, in, in mimicking, and this was our virtual chemical vapor deposition laboratory. But it was really just a, it was a process development project, but students could do a lot of reps. They could design experiments, collect data, and interpret those, importantly, to modify things. And the whole idea was to meet, uh, to submit a design by the end that met a bunch of competing constraints. 
You know, and I remember I saw one of your talks where you were talking about some of the stuff that you did uh, at Oregon State with the RED uh, program through mm-hmm. NSF. And I remember, I thought it was fascinating, you had like three different types of uh, problem statements. And they all were essentially the same kind of technical problem, but the first one was, here's data, determine the standard deviation of it, determine whether the two sets of data are different from each other, something like that. And then you had another one that added some context, like written context. And I remember you talking about how it was something like, oh, you're working at a chemical plant and you want to determine if these two batches are different from each other. And you were saying that a lot of the feedback we get from students is, why are you wasting my time making me wade through all of this context to get to the numbers that I need to be able to solve the problem, right? And then you had a third one. And the third one was very thoughtful where you had, it was like a a candy company and the company had a memo that said, we're, you know, quality is really important to us and our customers expect it because we have a premium product. And so we need to determine if these batches are different from each other uh, to make sure that they're adhering to our quality standards. And we're hiring you uh, because you're, you're the engineer. Uh, you should know how to figure this out. And, you know, tell us, uh, you know, do, do your analysis and send us a, a brief written report kind of explaining what's going on. And that is so much closer to what they will actually do in their careers. And they really like that type of uh, problem statement, too, much more than they did the other ones, which the first one was so dry, who could get excited about it? The second one seemed fake almost. The third one was so much more genuine. And I I thought that was really neat. I wonder if you could talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, and you're fast forwarding here, but basically the work we're doing on the RED project is like 10 years after we built the virtual CBD. And the idea of the RED project was to, uh, we call it resituating the work students do and to make it meaningful and consequential. So, uh, and and it goes back to your comment of the student who's frustrated with with their senior design because they want to know if they got the right answer. So, uh, you know, what we did was we took we, it was like uh, the project we had with the virtual CBD was, was a senior lab project that was like a third of the term. And what we did was we said we want a lot of those experiences, but make them one or two hour activities and put them in core courses so that when you use something like a phase diagram, you're using that phase diagram to do engineering work not to show Professor Cooper that you know where the liquid phase is or the vapor phase is. But there's some reason that uh, that diagram becomes a tool to do engineering work. So that's, you know, that that in a nutshell is a theme of a, a lot of the work that we do. You know, I'll say that students have varied responses to that. So there are students who get really excited because all of a sudden the work they're doing in school can, they can see how it connects to their development and professional formation. And you have other students who are used to a certain set of rules that they've gotten really good at, and that's become part of their identity. When you're when something's part of your identity and rules change, that's a very tough process to go through. And so, so, so we've, 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 uh, you know, you know, I won't claim that all students love it, but, uh, and, and, but you know, it's, uh, it's a way to make it where the hard work we do in chemical engineering to learn the content is hopefully a little bit more accessible when students, you know, go and use that same type of stuff in the future. Yeah, but, you know, the other thing I think that might be lost on those students who kind of appreciate having the the answer at the end is I think I might have been one of those kind of students whenever I was an undergrad because I was good at performing computations. 
I didn't really understand quite what I was doing, I don't think. But I was good at finding the answer, like identifying the right equations, finding the answer. And then I found I had a really hard time applying it to realistic types of problems. Because in real life, there is no problem statement. You know what I mean? So whenever I had to apply it to real life sort of problems, my conceptual knowledge wasn't really there. And now that I've worked really hard to gain that conceptual knowledge over the years, you know, working in the private sector and then teaching, and boy, you teach something, you really better understand it conceptually. Um, it's such a richer, more enjoyable experience, just kind of like working with the material and even like living life. You can explain so much about life with chemical engineering if you know all the con concepts. So I think that maybe those students they they're just being a little naive perhaps where they they don't understand how valuable that conceptual knowledge is and the ability to apply it to open-ended problems and really work with the tools like you said that are at your disposal as an engineer to solve problems so there's a lot to unpack with what you just said uh so i think that if you're young matt cooper studying chemical engineering and you're good at doing the computations, and that's what you're asked to do, um, then it makes sense that, that you want to demonstrate your competency in this area you want to you know, go into with those type of things. So part of it is the diet that you've been given, you know, just like you know, our, our physical bodies, our mental bodies uh, grow in certain ways based on what they're fed. Um, the other thing that I really found interesting in your comment there was affect. So affect being the emotional ways we engage in work. And the big myth is that engineering is purely objective and there's no feelings or emotion with it. You know, we all, things that are important to us, we're all emotional about. And, and you know, that's okay. But if you look at affect, as you start to form more connected knowledge, which you're talking about with conceptual understanding, and as the work shifts from demonstrating I can do something that's preconceived to coming up with creative ways and new, new ways to put things together, there, there's, a different, uh, there's a different way that a lot of humans interact with it. And it tends to be one, as you say, that it, it uh, makes a day go by quick because mm -hmm. you know, you, it, it, it's uh, just fundamentally a different way to engage in that content. So not only are you learning it better, but actually if you can, if you can be in that space, you're enjoying learning it better. So that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. It is really cool. I, I totally agree. And I think it's fascinating, too, because the stuff that you do with the AICHE concept warehouse, I mean, the listener knows that I just adore the AICHE concept warehouse. I think it's great. But I remember I first learned about it at, like a lot of people that I know did, whenever we went to the ASWE summer school in Maine, which was like in, was it 2011, 2012, something like that? Something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we. I th so, so that summer school. I think it was 2011, was was the the official public release of the concept warehouse. You know, oh, okay. It, it, we're coming up on a decade. Wow, that's awesome. You know, yeah. I still have the little. I'm not sure if you remember, but uh, like everybody that attended the first uh, session that you had for that, they got a little AICHE concept warehouse mug. Yeah, I got one I, for sure. I yeah. still, I still drink coffee yeah. out of that mug. Yeah. If you can believe it. Yeah, um, I do. <laughs> so hopefully, you got more out of the session than than, than, <laughs> than a coffee mug. Coffee yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> no, but I thought that was so cool because I. First of all, I had never seen anything like that before. You know, conceptual questions in engineering where you kind of present a situation and then, and it could be something like off the top of my head, I remember one that is about ice in a cup. You're trying to cool down a drink and what's going to cool down the drink faster? Is it going to be a kilogram of ice that's in like one inch by one inch cubes or a kilogram of ice that's in one centimeter by one centimeter cubes? Which one's going to cool it off faster? 
and you know just there's no calculations there you don't have they're not saying put a box around the answer it's what do you think you know based on everything that you know what do you think and i thought that was so interesting and just something i hadn't seen before and what's more i really wish i had been challenged with those types of questions when i was an undergrad because i think it would have really forced me to learn those concepts and like make those connections in my head between the computations I was doing and then the conceptual like underpinnings of those equations and everything, that would have helped me so much. So I use those in pretty much every course I teach. For whatever course it is, I end up using questions from, you know, like the AAC Concept Warehouse because I think it's such an effective way to see how people are thinking about things. And there's always common misconception type answers that are there too. And I like to use them where I'll have the class take them and I'll make them like low stakes quizzes, you know, but I'll have the entire class take them and then turn them in. And then I'll immediately go up to, in front of the class and, you know, kind of project the uh, quiz on the overhead, like the document camera. And then I'll, I'll explain the answer. And then I get students raising their hand, you know, kind of to say like, uh, they're ready to argue with me about the result because they have a misconception. It's wonderful because they they explain their misconception and it's in front of everybody and other people in the class share their misconception or kind of like rooting them on and then we can identify that misconception and like do the just-in-time teaching right we i can say like i'm glad that you guys have brought this up because we need to like make sure that you're thinking about this the right way before we keep going on with our content because we're going to build on that concept that you guys we, we just talked about so if there's a problem that anyone has with this concept, let's fix that. And then we can keep going on with the rest of class. So I, I love the concept warehouse. And I'm wondering, you know, I know that there were some conceptual inventories in other fields. And I, I remember you saying that like physics had some of these and you wanted to bring them into like chemical engineering. And I just want to know, like, how, how did you run across those? What made you want to get them into chemical engineering? Like, what went into building the concept warehouse from the ground up? Again, you, I, I, I uh, really enjoy conversations with you, Matt. Your, your descriptions are so rich. There's, there's a lot there. Um, you know, uh, the, that, that there's kind of two stories. There, there, there's two parts to that. So one is in hindsight. And I'll, I'll, I'll start with the hindsight. Um, so, uh, um, experts have compiled knowledge, and most people that teach chemical engineering, at least we hope, are experts. So what that means is that when you do some type of written work, you solve, solve the pipe flow problem and get the parabolic profile, that means a lot to an expert. But the uh, not this might be interfacing with it very differently. Recognizing a pattern and repeating the pattern rather than all of the, all of the compiled uh, understanding that an expert has. And so, so as you say in physics, um, there's an interesting story. So uh, um, the, the, this involves a concept inventory, which is a little bit different than a conceptual question for learning. This is a concept inventory is, is a set of questions that's been psycho, psychometrically um, uh, uh, developed to be a measure. So it's an assessment more than a learning tool. But, but const, the, uh, big, the original one that had a, such a big impact was a force concept inventory, force concept inventory that Haloon and Hestonese developed for physics. And that's really changed the way physics, physics, introductory physics has been taught. And what it did is it revealed that in mechanics, students can answer algorithmic problems correctly, but have a very hard time with these, you know, what happens in this situation questions. And kind of the uh, one of the originators to use these type of questions for learning as a 
you know, assessment and learning are intertwined, so I, I hate to make those binaries, but use it as you describe your use as part of instruction rather than uh, summative assessment of learning, which concept inventories are, was Eric Mazur. And Mazur, the, the story goes that, that um, Hestonis, he saw Hestonis give a talk and he was like, well, you know, you're at Arizona State, but my students at Harvard, they, they would get that stuff right. Hmm. So Hestonis is like, okay, why, 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 why don't we try? And you know how well the students at Harvard did? Probably just as well as the students at Arizona State. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> and which wasn't that well because, you know, Mazur had this you know, uh, very bright physicist had all this compiled knowledge that his students didn't have. So, you know, the, the goal of the concept, there's lots of goals of the concept warehouse. One, one is around instructor practice, but, but, you know, one of the ideas is that if you take the equations away, and just have students think and reason through things and think with one another, um, then, then they develop connected knowledge and they build a richer understanding, which makes it so when they solve problems, they're approaching them more like that expert instructor. There, there's a better alignment there. Um, so that's kind of, yeah, you know, some of the, uh, I guess, you know, learning perspective on it. The, the other half of it is a much more practical thing. So uh, in engineering at Oregon State, there was a wireless laptop initiative. And so all our first-year students, and this was in the 20-aughts sometime, all of our first-year students needed to invest in, in a laptop. And this uh, college invests a lot of money to put wireless infrastructure. Now we take it for granted, but it, it was, you know, an you know, uh, emerging thing at that point. But nobody had developed any, any specific educational uses for these wireless laptops. There's no reason a student can go downstairs to, you know, the wonderful computer lab that, that, that we had just had donated and, you know, do that work on a desktop. So I developed a system. I got a, a, a L.L. Stewart uh, Faculty Scholar Award. It was an inaugural award. And the pitch I made was that I wanted to use the laptops as a teaching tool in class. I mean, this is before cell phones where everyone had a, a computer in their pocket. Um, but so that we developed the predecessor of the concept warehouse, which was we called WISE, which was the web-based interactive science and engineering learning tool, the WISE learning tool. And that was so that we could have students engage in content as you described and interact. And I could get that information not on a pile of written things on my desk, but I could get it in real time as they submitted it and see uh, uh, one, one, one of the rich things as you know, you've done work on it is not only having them answer, but having them write explanations. I could see what their answers are and I could see what those written explanations are. Um, so, you know, why is just transform the way I taught. Um, and at that point, I, I uh, my thinking was, well, this is kind of too cool to just be doing here. At the same time, we had developed these, vir inter these virtual process development projects that weren't picked up so much by the community because they're pretty complicated pedagogical things to implement. And it's pretty different than people are used to. So the concept warehouse was like, well, this is pretty cool. And I'll bet faculty will use it. So I started, that's, uh, with that project, I really started thinking about, well, busy faculty who are within cultures, you know, what, what can support them where they're at rather than, hey, this, this hiring manager that I'm working on a project with has an idea and we'll build, build this crazy thing to meet that need that I'm really into, but 
how does that fit within other impacts? Well, and I like it too, because, you know, I've written some of my own conceptual questions and I wouldn't ever have done that had it not been for the concept warehouse kind of showing me a template to be able to use for that. And so little things like in my material and energy balance course, I really like to have sort of like, here's a system, draw the box that would have zero degrees of freedom, right? And so I never would have thought to do kind of a quick little one-off quiz sort of like that without the concept warehouse. So like if there's a concept that is an instructor you want to know whether the students know it or you want to help them learn it or, you know, depending on what your goal are, is it learning, you know, teaching or is it assessment? The AICHE concept warehouse and all those conceptual questions kind of show you how to do it, you know, because you've seen so many because there's what hundreds, thousands of these questions on there. So by the time you see a few of them, you're like, I see what they're doing. You identify a concept you identified that has like common misconceptions, you know, and then you can kind of like help the students work their way through that. I think it's really just a, it's, it's such a unique way of teaching that I wouldn't have ever thought of. Yeah. So, so, uh, part of the goal is of the concept warehouse is to actually support developing instructional practice. You know, it's not saying that there are folk. So it's a different professional development model than your dean saying, oh, go to this flip classroom workshop and come back and flip your class. But it's more like uh, a tool that can support instructional practice and help that emerge. We have a project right now, um, which is based on mechanics instruction in so in, in engineering, but a big thing we're doing is a community of practice. And in that community of practice, it's around teaching around this tool. So, you know, you describe students who are antsy because they have ideas that aren't the same as your ideas. So there's lots of ways you can approach it and you know how you do it is is perfectly valid where you uh, state the answer by have a welcoming classroom and, and generate a discussion. Someone else might uh, show the distribution and ask students in the class to present their arguments with the goal of getting them in a crossfire. So, so, so then they have authorship and they're doing the sense making. So, so there, it's it's not uh, it's not saying one way is right, the other way is right. There's like a lot of complicated factors, like how much time do you want to spend on it, and you know who the uh, how big the class is, and what the what the environment is, and a bunch of other things. But, well, and then probably the personality of the instructor and the personality of that individual class. You know, I could see like the debate format working well in some of the classes that I've had, <laughs> where I had some some very opinionated and uh, folks who weren't afraid to talk in front of other people. Other classes I could see with a different personality, they'd be like, yeah, I don't really feel like having a debate over this, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's like, uh, yes, you want to build on kind of the uh, culture of the class. And you're right, each class is different culture. Uh, yeah, and I've told this story uh, before, but and I, I don't know if I've told it to you or not, but whenever I was a kid, I remember that uh, I had just recognized that if I went outside to the back deck in the middle of the summer with a glass of iced tea, that water would accumulate on the outside of the glass. And if a like if an adult had said, hey, Matt, you're a you're a bright young fellow, you know, what do you why does that happen? I thought, because I was a child, I thought, you know, I've got a glass of iced tea there. Where else is the water coming from? Yeah, it's gone you know, out. It's, it's gone through. It's got to be coming from inside the glass, right? <laughs> what, the invisible water vapor in the air? I was a kid. I didn't know that. But, of course, the thing was is that if I had said, oh, you know, um, you're asking me what's going to happen when I take this glass of iced tea outside, there's going to be water on the outside. They'd be like, wow, what a bright young man. But I had a huge misconception about what was going on, right? And so I actually like to tell that story to my students because it's like, hey, 
people have misconceptions all the time. Like I had misconceptions too. Like it's not a problem. We just need to identify them and then deal with them. So, so what if we drop the label misconceptions? What, what if we said you had some ideas? Because yeah, exactly. things going through stuff and appearing on the other side is not an unreasonable thing, right? Mm-hmm. If we say that's a, that you've experienced times when I mean, why do I need to pump my bike tire up regularly when I go through that? Exactly. Yeah. Right? So, uh, you know, it's not, it's not because the air's landing on the tire from the outside. So, so it's not unreasonable to have that idea. Mm-hmm. It's just that idea doesn't necessarily fit in this situation. So what are other ideas and how can we, how can we work through the ideas? And as we work through the ideas, build this community. Pretty neat stuff. So I really like the concept warehouse just because I think it gets at a lot of those kind of things that, like you said, you know, people have ideas about how these things work and it's fun to play with those, especially with things that we know people sometimes have the wrong idea about with the physical phenomenon that's going on. You can really probe at that and you can be like, so let's let's see, do you, do you have the right idea about how this phenomena works? I just think it's it's a very fascinating way to do it. So I'm I'm a huge fan, as you know. Awesome. Uh, the, uh, one more point here is that uh, I think a common thing for experienced instructors is students who can answer things on the test, but they're in some project situation and they don't activate that. I re- I referred to this a little bit earlier, um, and. One thing about working with that idea that the water is going through the glass is that we're modeling with students or for students that uh, the resources you bring from your life experience are part of engineering. It's, it's, it's not that, hey, we, there's this book way to think that's different than the ways you think. Uh, uh, I, I was just at a uh, talk where someone was describing uh, team interactions in a first-year course. And he described one member of a team talking about what he had as a farm. And he called that, quote, redneck engineering. Hmm. And uh, that was interesting to me because there was an implication that there wasn't, there, there weren't funds of knowledge from that experience on a farm. Like you're on a farm, things break down, you gotta figure out how to get them working and you have a set of resources to get them working. And you can't necessarily, you know, you know do things that aren't expedient. Does that sound like engineering to you? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one of my favorite professors at West Virginia University where I went to undergrad, undergrad I'll give him a shout out, his name's Al Stiller. Um, fascinating gentleman. And he grew up on a farm and he had the best stories. And it was, his class was a unique one to take because it was a material science course that I particularly remember that I took from him. And the whole class was just him telling stories. And it would be a story about like how he had an old Volkswagen bus and it had the, um, the sheet metal that you could actually see the individual crystals of the steel in the sheet. And he said that he would he noticed that when one of the crystals started to corrode, the entire crystal would corrode away, and then one of the adjacent ones would corrode, and it would corrode away. But it's not like they all corroded at the same time. And you know the reason why is because it's like a sacrificial anode. You know that that one in particular crystal was the one that was most likely to corrode, and so it's going to corrode, and then it's the one that's next most likely, and so on and so on. But he would just tell these stories and that he would explain it that way. And then his exams were, you know, I always wondered how much I was actually getting out of the course. And then his exams were always explain the concept of a sacrificial anode. It was things like that, where like by listening to his stories about things he had encountered in his life, I actually somehow knew all of these things because of the way he had presented them. It was just a fascinating way to teach that I think I'd have a hard time replicating but it was so cool. And I agree with you, you know, him growing up on a farm, he had so many observations that he had made. And by going through and becoming like a PhD in chemical engineering, he could look back and understand why he, all those things had happened. 
one thing I like about that story you tell is uh, the idea that he's aligning assessments with how you're thinking and learning in class. So if, if for example, if you're, you're doing concept-based instruction using the concept warehouse, but you're just, you just give algorithmic problems, mm -hmm. then that's not aligned. And, you know, there, there's lots of issues with having instructional practice that's not aligned. So I appreciate that aspect of the story as well. <laughs> So, uh, you know, onto a different topic, Milo, I wanted to talk with you about your thermodynamics textbook because you also somehow have found the time to write a textbook. Uh, it's called Engineering and Chemical Thermodynamics, if I remember correctly. I've actually got it on the shelf. And I wonder what made you want to write a textbook? So many people have written textbooks have told me like, never do it. It's, it's such a, a time sink and it's not as rewarding as you think. But I'm wondering what what did you what did you think of that process and what was maybe the most rewarding and least rewarding parts of writing a textbook? Yeah, it was certainly a moment of delusion that got me going on that. <laughs> uh, you know, so I, I refer to connected knowledge when I talk about the concept warehouse. But one of the issues I had with thermodynamics texts, and there's no shortage of them is that they did not uh, engage students in understanding in ways where uh, topics built on one another and students could connect to them. And one of the reasons for some of them is that in classical thermodynamics, molecules a bad word, right? It's all macroscopic observed. But as chemical engineers, it goes back to this idea of resources we understand and can explain things. So I was like, this is this would really help students learn. So it started out as a set of notes, and then it kind of evolved from there. Um, you know, I think uh, taking something like that and having your own uh, take on it is that to me is creativity. So it's something where you are, you get to express what's of value to you and you get to innovate how it's done, but it's within constraints, you know, there's mm -hmm. content there and, and there's expectations. So, you know, in my professional life, that expression, the expression of creativity through that textbook is something that is really rewarding and, you know, you know I, I, I'll never do that. I'll never write another textbook, but I, I really appreciate that. Kind of, yeah, well, and I'm, I'm glad you bring up about the creativity because I think that's something that is really important, maybe particularly for engineers. You know, I remember looking at writing, like you brought up writing in, you know, like for conceptual questions, written answers. And I remember I stumbled upon some research and I couldn't tell you where I found it or who it was, but they were saying that these kind of writing assignments are actually more beneficial to somebody like an engineer, an engineering student, than they are to, say, a humanities student, because an engineering student gets so many, so, so far fewer opportunities to write than a humanities student. So by making them get their thoughts across in writing, you're actually doing a lot more for them than you would if you would do the exact same thing for a humanities student, just because it's kind of more of the same for the humanities student. And I think sometimes in engineering, we don't focus on the creativity enough. And so, you know, I feel like maybe something like that, like I like talking about creativity when it comes to engineering, because I feel like maybe we get kind of outsized benefits by being creative with our engineering as opposed to just, I mean, it's for every professor who has ever written like a fun problem that they wrote just for themselves, basically, because the students are going to be like, oh, come on, you know, like, and this is about the movie, The Martian, like, really, yeah. you wrote this problem about this. But I, I like that kind of creativity. I think it's important to keep doing that. So I think that's cool that you bring that up in the context of writing a textbook. Yeah, just, just an aside on creativity. So I think... If you look at engineering, like 
how engineering manifests is different. You can't say there's one set of things, but there's certainly a wide range of competencies that individuals can bring to an engineering project, project um, that can be very beneficial to the fruition of that project. And if you look at that broad set of competencies, I don't necessarily think we do a great job in the academy at cultivating all of them. We cultivate a very specific set that, that we've grown to value. And I don't necessarily think, well, is that, is, is that the spectrum of the ways that everyone can contribute? So, uh, and I think creativity is one of those things. Uh, so, you know, you know, creative engineers, I don't think there's, uh, if you go to, you know, these consensus reports from the National Academy or, you know, the, uh, North Carolina State Industrial Advisory Board, I don't think anybody would dispute that creativity isn't just like a extremely valuable uh, competency for, for an engineer to have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in many ways, it's kind of the heart of innovation, right? You have a creative way of approaching a problem and you give it a try and then that creates a, you know, a new way of looking at that problem or a new method towards solving that problem. So I think creativity, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's a little out of my field. I don't know how you teach that kind of thing. You know, like I always, that's one of the things I always wonder about with my students. What do you think of that, Milo? That's a great question. So I think that you absolutely don't teach it by having single right answer problems. That, that, that uh, if you can get the most accurately, most quickly, you're deemed the uh, best potential engineer. I think having things that where there's uh, multiple possible solutions and where uh, different types of contexts have to be considered. And, you know, even to the degree of community context, like how will this solution impact the community? political context. Is this viable in our political system? I think as you build in types of work in engineering school that are more reflective of kind of the spectrum, then creativity will naturally uh, be a competency that contributes to well, I tell you, uh, Milo, we should get into Felder, Rousseau, and Bullard. We've got, uh, well, that's something that we like to do here on In the Fume Hood, and I'm pretty excited to have a thermodynamic specialist here because we're going over phase diagrams. It's right there. Uh, chapter 6.1, I believe, is where yeah. we're at. Is it, uh, is it possible, Matt, for me to, I did some homework on this. Oh, you did some homework. Terrific. Yeah. So yeah uh, here, I can. Possible for me to share my screen? Yeah, I can. Here, give me just a second and I will enable that. So, uh, incidentally, this is the first screen share I think that has happened. On All right. I'm, I'm an innovator. So you're a trailblazer. So, this is a concept warehouse question. Oh, boy. That we ask students to, that I ask in the first, first, Day or two of thermotia. So we're like vapor. Yeah, that's yeah. vapor. And then the next question is. Uh, and then the next question, this is again a concept warehouse question. In an experiment, 200 milliliters of water are placed in a vacuum system at room temperature. The system is then quickly pumped down to a pressure of 0 0.04, 0 0.0045 atmospheres. Predict what will happen. So then you pump it down. So it's going to boil. So, so it's going to boil. So I asked this to the class, and here, here's a bar graph which shows about three quarters of the students selected vapor, and uh, uh, the other three responses are distributed. So this says three quarters of students who've taken material and energy balances in Thermo 1 understand it's a vapor and a quarter don't. Or they're just not there, or for some reason they're picking other answers and, and they're not engaged enough. For the second question, was an open-ended question? 
Oh yeah, okay, so it's going to it's going to boil because you're dropping the pressure, right? Which is the same thing in many ways as raising the temperature, at least as far as that phase diagram is concerned. So that's what I would say. Yeah. Oh, and here's some interesting ones. And, and these are ones I just selected during class. Okay, so for the listener, there's some interesting ones. So like, as the pressure drops, the liquid will slowly evaporate, but since this is subtle, it will be in a liquid vapor equilibrium. Uh, another one is liquid water will click, quickly boil off, leaving only water vapor at room temperature. And then the last one, liquid water will change phase due to vapor, change phase to vapor due to the decrease in pressure at constant temperature. This can be seen with the phase diagram. Interesting. So they're using the phase diagram as a tool to predict what will happen. And I want to share with you a video I show after this, and you can describe the video. Um, and I have to give uh, props to Matt Liberatori because his YouTube project, mm. uh, one of his students in, in, in his YouTube work found this video. And so it's like, you know, again, uh, shifting from the idea of the individual to the social support. Zone. But I'm going to pull up this video and I'll let you describe it, Matt. Okay. Listener. I'll paint a picture with my words. Uh, yes. So it looks like it's a uh, vacuum chamber. You've got some liquid water in a beaker being poured into a beaker. Okay. Okay, I am going to hit play now. Okay, so liquid water in a beaker, and then they place the, uh, you know, the glass part of the vacuum chamber on top, and they start dropping the pressure. And you see it boil pretty vigorously. Yeah, so one of the responses was, it will be subtle. Would you call yes, that it will subtle? be subtle. That was anything but subtle. Yes, so uh, now what do you see? It looked like it, there was ice. Yeah, so ice is formed. Interesting. Because I think that is kind of hard to understand what that would even look like. Oh, cool. Yeah, uh, right. Pardon the pun. <laughs> cool, yeah, as you see a, a block of ice melting and boiling at the same time. So, yeah, pretty pretty interesting stuff. Who said chemical engineering isn't awesome? Nobody ever, because it is. It's terrific. Let's talk about this a little bit. I think it's pretty clear one of the ways that you teach this material when it comes to phase diagrams, because you, you show the concept warehouse questions. Mm -hmm. And I think those are great ones because they really illustrate what the boundaries are between solid and liquid and vapor. And that's really what the whole phase diagram thing is about. And I like that it looks qualitatively similar for most compounds, you know? It's not like the lines are exactly the same, but they look pretty similar and they all make sense. It's like, well, if you drop the pressure a lot, you're going to have vapor or, or gas, right? Uh, if you, you're going to drop the temperature a lot, you've probably got solid and in between it's gonna be liquid, you know? And you can see how all those different variables play with each other as far as the effect on the substance. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of phase diagrams. Um... Yeah, you know, one interesting thing is that solid-liquid line of water points differently than most substances. Yes, well, water is a very unique substance indeed, right? Yes. I mean, I always talk to the students. It's like, do you know how weird it is that water expands when it freezes? Because you got to think about it like if instead it was like most substances and water contracted when it froze then you got to imagine like life on earth might never have really happened the way that it happened because you'd have lakes or oceans and they would freeze on top and then the ice would drop to the bottom and then you know the next year the the water would freeze on top and then drop to the bottom and so in the summers maybe the top part would melt and you'd have some liquid water but a big block of ice you know resting on the bottom of you know, the ground for, you know, bottom of the ocean, bottom of every lake, bottom of every pond. So, I mean, humans probably wouldn't be around, you know, like we might have like protozoa and stuff. But it's just like something as little as that is a big difference as far as like life on Earth. There, there you go. So that is uh, thinking about consequences of a phase diagram. 
and proper. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you know, so, so there's uh, one one reason I, you know, there's a few few things that can build off of, as he said, uh, water. So in that example, we're only changing pressure. So one of the neat things about that example is it's, it brings into play an observation from the physical world. In that water boiling, you can say, well, why does that happen? And that can motivate uh, the development of Gibbs energy. Well, as pressure drops, the uh, vapor becomes farther apart. So there's more configuration, so the entropy goes up. So re really, the liquid isn't changing in thermodynamic properties from, from one atmosphere to 0. 0.0045 or whatever I made up the, the pressure was for that. But uh, the, va and the, the vapor at those pressures are an ideal gas so at the same temperature. The enthalpy is not changing. Well, the entropy is so if we add if we take h minus ts we can see g goes from being lower in the liquid at atmosphere to being lower in the vapor at vacuum so what does that help us do that helps us predict what happens and you know a lot of folks were able to predict what would happen now the other thing the other thing is we observe something we observe that ice formed. And this is where the phase diagram becomes really useful. Because if you look at it, you say, well, the temperature must have changed for ice. There's no, uh, there's no way at room temperature, there's no solid there. So what's going on there? And we reason through that, different people have ideas and get to the point, well, for that water to evaporate, then it has to overcome those stable hydrogen bonds in the liquid, and that takes energy. But it's in a vacuum, so there's not much convection going on. Uh, low temperature, not much radiation. So where's that energy coming from? Well, it's just borrowing it from the remaining water. But we, <laughs> yeah. and, and so you can create, so, so you can predict what happens using the phase diagram, but you can also use it to explain a phenomenon that was unexpected. Mm. So that is how conceptual tools can be useful in engineering. Not Boy, I really like the thread that you started pulling with the phase diagram there, Milo. That that that's pretty cool. So so that that's my take on Felder Resound Bullard six one. Nice, nice. Well, I'm I'm honestly I don't know what to say. I'm really impressed. I never. <laughs> would have thought of all that. But I guess that's what happens whenever you are talking to somebody who wrote a thermodynamics textbook. <laughs> I suppose that's that's what you get. So, um, Milo, thank you so much for that. That was awesome. Um, I'm curious, too. You know, one of the other things we like to talk about on In the Fume Hood is music. And yeah. I have gotten to learn about a lot of our colleagues' musical tastes, you know, over the past few months. And so I'm curious what you listen to, Milo. What uh, what do you have on your uh, stereo or your headphones? What what do you listen to? Well, so I I mean uh, right now I do most of my listening when I'm writing the Peloton. So with the pandemic, we bought a Peloton. Uh, do you know what one of those is? Yeah, the the bikes, right? It's a bike, and you take exercise classes, and they're to music. And in the in the rainy winters in Oregon. When you can't don't want to be going to the gym because you like your health, that was right. the thing, and and it's kind of limited in terms of music there. Um, if if I think of my music tastes, they're pretty eclectic. So, uh, you know, I, I grew up in in a family where my mother played folk guitar at hmm. a local radio station KPFA in Berkeley. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah, so she she go weekly to do that. She had this killer Martin guitar, like circa I don't know, forties or something, maybe the thirties. But it was just a sweet instrument. Um, and you know, she was into kind of folk music, uh, um, Pete Seeger type. Um, my my mom and dad were really into Joan Baez and and then Bob Dylan, so that. Of stuff, um, 
You know, I, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan myself. Actually. Yeah. So, you know, there's uh, what a great lyricist he is. And there, there's some great footage of Bob Dylan interviews. And he's just, uh, you know, that that early Bob Dylan spirit where he's grateful oh, yeah. and soulful. And it's like, you know, <laughs> he, he like cuts through motives so quickly. I actually saw him live uh, with Paul Simon. This was back in like the year 2000. Uh, They were doing a tour together and I got to see them both live. And, uh, you know, Bob Dylan, let's just say his voice is very different now or back then, I suppose, than it was back in his heyday whenever he was, uh, you know, singing all those songs. Yeah, well, he's always been pretty gravelly. (laughs) Yes. yes. You know, I've seen Bob Dylan quite a few times as well. And Paul Simon a couple times. The latest time we saw Paul Simon was up, up the hill in Bend. They have outdoor con- concerts there. Um, that was only a couple of years ago. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're both wonderful to see. Um, when I was in graduate school, I saw Paul Simon uh, with Lady Smith Black Mombasa uh, on the Graceland tour. Um, you know, and, and Graceland was really interesting. There's some controversy over you know, did Paul Simon appropriate this music or not? But since uh, 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 since politics is a no-no, I won't weigh in on that controversy. But, <laughs> I but, see. But, you know, the music is just wonderful. Uh, that, that just uh, I had not heard music like Graceland, uh, like like at that show until I went. Yeah, um, since since then, I wasn't. So uh, your eclectic music tastes move on from that sort of, you know, folkier, you know, very lyric driven type of thing to to what other uh, genres? Well, so, you know, I'll I'll, I'll just do this in a historical context. But as I was growing up, kind of uh, there were two influences kind of through my peers and my older siblings. But one was, you know, the San Francisco sound was happening. So, you know, the, uh, uh, that whole improvisational long song type thing, uh, Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead, that type of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, that, uh, then there were these massive outdoor shows called Days on the Green, uh, you know, with bands like The Who, Leonard Skinner, um, the last show Led Zeppelin ever played in the United States was a day on the greenhouse act. Wow. So wow, that's cool. So I I, I I got into both kind of popular rock and roll and also, you know, kind of this alternative more exploratory rock and roll. And then getting into that, um, started uh, started getting interested in some of the derivative band bands. So there was a band called Reconstruction, which was a jazz outfit. That kind of came out of the San Francisco scene. Um, and then a band, Old and In the Way. I love that name. I'm feeling it more and more every day. Old <laughs> and, and In the Way, which, which played bluegrass. So, you, you know, what jazz one way, bluegrass another way. Um, uh-huh. You know, my when I got to college, I had a friend who, who grew up in New York and brought, uh, introduced me to the reggae scene beyond Bob Marley and Peter Tosh and Jimmy Cliff. Uh, and uh, so so learning about reggae. Uh, my son is into rap, and that's one thing that I, I, uh, uh, I'm still trying to develop the appreciation hmm. he has for it. Uh, but. Well, uh, our listener, of course, knows I am a huge fan of rap music. Okay, and, maybe uh, you can help me here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if you're really interested in um, like lyrics, and that's actually what I think is the best part of rap music, is the lyrics are actually, depending on the artist, of course, right? The lyrics are very, very thoughtful. So you might want to try listening to The Roots. I really like the roots. Um, they, their lyricists are really great. Like not only do they write incredible songs, but they're also really good at uh, spitting verse, I guess you could say. Um, if you want something a little bit jazzier, a little bit more fun because the roots, not not exclusively, but the roots talk about social issues a lot. 
so the music can be a little heavier. Yeah. Um, but if you want something a little jazzier, I really like Jurassic Five. Sure. Uh, they're kind of just fun, kind of you know move your feet kind of uh, hip hop music, and there's a, there's a number of uh, rappers in the outfit, so they all have very unique voices. So that's fun too. Also, um, you know, you don't have to necessarily overthink it. Jay-Z is pretty good. I mean, I know Jay-Z is very popular, but he is he is pretty good, especially his um, earlier albums. His newer stuff isn't quite my cup of tea, but his earlier earlier albums are really good. So, so. do you listen to Ice-T at all? Oh, Ice-T. So mm -hmm. I haven't listened to Ice-T in a number of years, but I did listen to Ice-T when he first came out in his career. So yes, I, I did listen to Ice T. That, that was um, almost like rap meets rock and roll, you know. Yes, yeah, exactly. He was one of the um, kind of like I don't know. He was one of the people that made it all happen. You know, he was one of the first ones. Yeah, that was before the Law and Order days. Yes, well, and I mean, we could go back even further. You know, I mean, Rakim and uh, you know, I'm no rap historian, but it. It's really been a thing since, I mean, at least the early 80s. And it just was like a, a, a snowball that kept gaining more snow as it was, you know, rolling down. Like it just became more of a force. And then it really exploded in the late 80s, early 90s. And that's when I got into it, especially the early 90s. And I just never stopped liking it. So... Yeah, that, that kind of brings me to today. And I just, I like all kinds of music. I really do. I have pretty eclectic tastes as well. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with your son. I really enjoy your right. music. Well, you can hang out with him. <laughs> now, I don't know what he'll think of my music taste, my rap taste. He might be like, oh, Jurassic 5, come on. I'll have to ask I like him about Roots and Jurassic 5. And I'll tell you, Milo, I know that we're just about out of time, but this has been such a, a delight and a thrill to have you as a guest on In the Fume Hood. Uh, you've been one of the folks that I've been wanting to interview on In the Fume Hood for such a long time, and I'm glad that we finally got to do this. Yeah, so thank, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's, uh, it's been my pleasure to be here, and it's always, always a pleasure to uh, see you, Matt, and interact. Talk and oh, that's so nice of you to say. Did you like this edition of In the Fume Hood? Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasting fix. Follow us on Twitter at In the Fume Hood and feel free to share feedback, suggestions, or let us know if we got something wrong.